When Marlon Brando won his second and final Oscar for his career-defining role as Vito Corleone in The Godfather, he famously declined the honor and instead chose to send Sachin Littlefeather in his place to read a statement explaining that he was boycotting the ceremony to protest Hollywood's portrayal of Native Americans and draw national attention to the standoff at Wounded Knee. But what happened to the Oscar itself? Littlefeather didn't take it. Her job was, in fact, to decline it. So it stands to reason that the unengraved statue was returned to the evening's backstage supply to be given to another winner later in the ceremony. But in 1995, a so-called Brando Oscar was listed at auction. The Academy immediately called foul, insisting that the Oscar must be a fake. But the serial number indicated that it was in fact a real Oscar meant to be handed out at the 45th Academy Awards. After some internal digging, it became clear that this auctioned Oscar was actually the unclaimed Oscar of one of the co-directors who won for Best Documentary that night. Footage from the ceremony shows the unclaimed Oscar sitting on the podium as the stage went dark, at which point someone probably stole it and held onto it until it re-emerged in 1995 for sale, and never had anything to do with Brando. But it turns out that the Oscar that was intended for Brando went on quite the adventure as well. While it should have been returned to the backstage supply, presenter Roger Moore claims that when he went backstage, still carrying the statue, no one told him what to do with it. So he took it back to his seat, and then out to the after parties, and then home. Enter Charlie Chaplin into this sordid tale. The 45th Academy Awards marked Chaplin's first competitive Oscar win for a movie that had actually premiered 20 years earlier. But that's a whole other story for another time. In the interest of this story, Chaplin was not able to make it to LA, so his Oscar was shipped to him in England, but was damaged in transit. His family wrote to the Academy to ask if it could be replaced. As luck would have it, Moore had just called the day before to arrange the return of the Oscar he'd borrowed. So, in a sense, the answer to whatever happened to the Brando Oscar is that Charlie Chaplin got it. Welcome to For Your Reconsideration, <laughs> the podcast where we re-examine Best Picture races and determine if the Academy got it right. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And today we are talking about the 45th Academy Awards held in 1973 to honor the best films in 1972. Uh, ceremony was hosted by Carol Burnett, Michael Caine, Charlton Heston, and Rock Hudson. Dang. Yes. All right. <clears throat> So, do you want to know what's happening in 1972? The context <laughs> in which these films premiered? I kind of want to know more about that hosting job. Yeah, in the 70s, they really they did a lot of uh, act, a bunch of actors sharing the, the duties. Okay. That's just like a stacked cast, you know? Mm-hmm. That's cool. I like that. I kind of like, you know, obviously we've been not having a host lately, but kind of splitting the duties among several people would be kind of a good idea, too. I mean, I guess that's, yeah. that's technically what they are doing, but not as fluid. Yeah, yeah not like as official yes well all right you want to know what was happening in 1972 though sure all right nixon was the president fun times to be had by all um on january 25th shirley chisholm the first african-american congresswoman announced her candidacy for president on june 17th five white house operatives were arrested for burglarizing the offices of the democratic national committee at the watergate hotel on June 23rd, U.S. President Richard Nixon and his White House chief of staff were taped talking about using the CIA to obstruct the FBI's investigation into the Watergate break-ins. And that would come back to haunt them, but not in 1972. 
Um, in July, actress Jane Fonda toured North Vietnam and was photographed sitting on a North Vietnamese anti-aircraft gun, which kind of messed up her career for a while. On July 1st, Ms. Magazine began publication. What is that? So this like feminist magazine oh, was started okay. by Gloria Steinem. Oh, great. I feel like a jerk. Thank you. You're welcome. On July 25th, U.S. Health, health officials admit that African-Americans were used as guinea pigs in the Tuskegee study of untreated syphilis. So that's when we found out about that. And November 7th, there was an election. Uh, Republican incumbent Nixon defeated Democratic Senator George McGovern in a landslide. The election had the lowest voter turnout since 1948, with only 55% of the electorate vo- voting. Which is also why it's crazy that they were breaking into the DNC headquarters, because there was no way they were going to lose. Yeah. And still they tried to cheat. Yep. Okay. But enough about boring old history. Let's talk about the year in film. <laughs> what we really care about here. It's not a lot, but I will tell you... <laughs> What the top 10 films of 1972 were. Sounds good. Number 10. This is highest grossing at the box office, yes? No, it's just my personal top 10 of 1972. Okay. Yes, this is highest grossing by domestic box office. Okay. Everything you've always wanted to know about sex. But we're afraid to ask? Yeah, they didn't include that whole title. I don't know if that was like in. Oh, wait, that's the, I don't know. I don't know. Number nine, Lady Sings the Blues. Eight, The Getaway. Seven, Deep Throat. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Different time. Uh, number six, Academy Award nominee, Cabaret. Number five, Jeremiah Johnson. Number four, Academy nominee, Deliverance. Number three, What's Up, Doc? Number two, The Poseidon Adventure. Ooh. And number one, Best Picture winner, The Godfather. Now I wish we were doing um, supplementals for this, because I do want to watch The Poseidon Adventure. Okay. You can do that on your own time, because I sure. have no desire to watch that film. <laughs> okay. But there's some notable film debuts in 1972. Jodie Foster, Isabelle Huppert, Samuel L. Jackson, Ben Kingsley, John Lithgow and Steve Martin. Hmm. Interesting. Sure. Wouldn't you say? No. All right. Let's talk about some fun facts about the ceremony itself. (laughs) This is how the podcast works, Kyle. I need you to get on board with it. All right. Your turn is coming. Okay. As I alluded to in the intro, Charlie Chaplin won his only competitive Oscar for Best Original Dramatic Score for his 21-year-old film Limelight, which was eligible because it did not screen in Los Angeles until 1972. Chaplin had received honorary Academy Awards in 1929 and 1972, so the year before. But really, it shouldn't have even been eligible because of some other stuff that's going to come up later as well, but like... Basically, they just wanted Charlie Chaplin because, like, him coming for his honorary Oscar the year before had been, like, a huge hit. And so they were like, let's do it again. Cool. Whatever. Sure. Uh, Cabaret, Bob Fosse's adaptation of the Broadway stage musical, set a record for the most Oscars won without winning Best Picture. 
This year was also the first time that two African-American women received nominations for Best Actress. That was Diana Ross and Cicely Tyson. Um, It was initially announced on February 12th, 1973, that The Godfather received 11 nominations more than any other film that year. Then that was reduced to 10 nominations, tied with Cabaret for the most. After a new vote by the Academy's music branch, following a controversy over whether Nino Rota's score for The Godfather was eligible for the nomination because the love theme in The Godfather had previously been used by Rota in Fortunella, an Italian movie from several years earlier. Whoa, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So for the re-balloting, members of the music branch chose from six films, The Godfather and the five films that had been on the short list. But it didn't get nominated during the re-balloting. And John Addison's score for Sleuth won the new vote and replaced Rhoda's score on the official list of nominees. Wow, that's interesting. There was also some controversy in the Best Song category. The nominations in the category for Best Original Song were not announced in February with the rest of the nominations, reportedly because of a mix-up in balloting. It was later reported that the Academy had been considering whether Curtis Mayfield's song Freddy is Dead from the film Superfly should be eligible. The song was ruled ineligible for nomination because its lyrics were not sung in the film. The Academy governor was quoted as saying, Times have changed. In the old days, Hollywood made 30 or 40 musicals a year, and there were plenty of songs to choose from. Now there are hardly any, and most of the eligible songs are themes. But the lyric and the music must be heard on the soundtrack to be eligible. Oh, okay. Now we talk about the films that are nominated for Best Picture, Okay. Kyle. First up, I'm going in, in watch order. Was that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. First up, Sounder, directed by Martin Ritt, screenplay by Lon Elder, based on the novel by William H. Armstrong. No logline for this. Oh. I know. I didn't feel like making one up. The oldest son of a loving and strong family of black sharecroppers comes to an age in the Depression-era South after his father is imprisoned for stealing food. That's accurate. Yeah. That is a, I thought that was a pretty good description, honestly. Yeah, it was. Um, you want to know some other stuff about it? Yeah, of course. I knew you would. Sounder received critical acclaim with reviewers praising it as a welcome antidote to the contemporaneous wave of black films, most, most of which were considered of low quality and budget and exploitative. The film's depiction of a loving family was hailed as a banner accomplishment for black filmmakers and audiences. Variety wrote that the picture had been, quote, for good or ill, singled out to test whether the black audience will respond to serious films about the black experience rather than the super black exploitation features. This was the first film to feature Oscar nominated performances by two black actors with Paul Winfield nominated for Best Actor and Cicely Tyson for Best Actress. This feat wouldn't be achieved again until What's Love Got to Do With It in 1993. And the third film to achieve this is Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, nominated this year that we are living in currently. Okay. Uh, And this is the only Best Picture Oscar nominee this year to not be nominated for Best Director. That is, that is wild. So then what took its spot? Oh, uh. No. What took its spot then? Do you know? Uh, yeah, let me see. Joseph Mankiewicz for Sleuth. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Um, Sounder, I, first, I think we should start by kind of giving a funny story. We had to, we had yes. to <laughs> pick this one up from the library. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I, I don't believe it was my mistake. I think the correct actors and director were listed on the website. But I got this 2003 Disney TV version of it, mm-hmm. uh, which... 
as you found out, is directed by... Uh, the Kevin Hooks, is that his name? Who's yes. the little boy in the 72 version directed the 2003 version. Directed, the yes, the 2003 version, which is kind of cool. Yeah. But definitely we were watching it and it's just like, I don't think this is it. Well, it started out, they were showing some trailers yeah. and the trailers in front of it were like Airbud. Yeah. And so many Airbuds. <laughs> yeah. And I was like. Or Airbud hmm. type movies. Yes. <laughs> this doesn't seem right. Yeah. No, it did not. It did not. Um, so yeah, Disney eventually remade this property, which I find interesting, but, um, uh, yeah, I thought, I honestly, I thought this was like a, a pretty, you know, Oscar type of movie. I don't know if there was like anything amazing about it. Uh, I thought the performances, especially of the adults, but also David Lee played with, uh, played by Kevin Hooks, um, gave really, 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 uh, good performances in it. Um, but, uh, Sorry, and the cinematography was actually pretty good, uh, which I believe the cinematographer's name. Um, oh, I'm already messing up. Uh, fill in the gap. Fill in the gap. I don't. I don't know what to say. John A. Alonzo, uh, who also shot um, Chinatown, oh. um, but I thought it looked really good. I thought from the opening, there's like a night scene in the forest where they're where they're chasing some meat to eat, which really kind of sets off. The whole movie. I, I will say one thing about this movie is I feel like it's paced out really well. I mean, like everything leads to the next thing, like really clearly, really well. The drama kicks in, um, and it's really yeah. It's honestly just a really it's a really solid story, which I know is based on a book. I'm um, a very popular book that you read when you were younger, or no, I didn't read it. Oh, okay. I just saw. It. I think my mom had it. It's a children's book. It won the Newbery Award, Newbery Medal. Um, and I think my mom had it like in her her library for her class gotcha room. gotcha and sounder is, a, is the name of the dog in the film but mm-hmm. apparently the book comes from more of a the dog is featured even more so however this i feel like is more about um the family yeah. the family the family and dealing with you know race in the south at this time um and being a poor sharecropper doesn't look like an easy life no that's for sure um but yeah overall like uh you know like i mean honestly i have nothing to really complain about except the sound design to a degree because they had sounder barking so much and it sounded exactly the same and it was just annoying and annoying and annoying and then at one point it's like they're all worried because like sounder won't bark i'm like thank god uh i'm glad that stopped but otherwise yeah i thought the performance was really i thought it was just honestly a really a really solid story that felt like you know the like I don't know. It was kind of like the struggles, not not necessarily obviously the same or as wide scoped as something like Grapes of Wrath, but it was just kind of an interesting story to see this this familial um, take on just like economic, economical struggles during this time period and what you have to do to survive and what you have to do to, you know, make sure your family um, is cared for. And then how even after going to prison, the family still pulls together and does what they can to survive until he gets to come back home mm-hmm. um honestly just yeah a wonderful story but a pretty just average oscar bait movie yeah i would agree with that um i mean i do i think you know it's based on a, a book that's intended for children so i do think that the plot is a little bit like i don't want to say simplistic but it's just it's very straightforward you know it's mm-hmm. just like and i think from what i was reading from reviews of people who had read the book and seen the movie like it is a pretty faithful adaptation of the book and so i think that you know um as a as a story intended for young readers i think it's it's mostly to like teach them about 
sharecropping like about what the that life would have been like for a black family in that time period in the south and i think in that instance like it does a good job like i think that it you know depicts that well um but for me there's nothing that really like compels me to like seek this out or recommend it you know what i mean like it was good i enjoyed it i think like you said the performances are really great cicely tyson i think is um amazing and even the kid i mean the kids kid actors you know but i thought he was good and a lot of it does rest on him he's the main character um i like that you bring up that you know um it's based on a book and you know it's based on a children's book i think honestly yeah when watching this i was like this would be paired really well with like in a classroom after we finish mm-hmm. the book watching like a really good movie adaptation like just just it's a good movie it is but yeah 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 no I which agree. is not always the case with kids movies that's very true <laughs> yeah i do think yeah i can see it definitely being shown after you've read it in class watching this on friday mm-hmm. you know yeah <laughs> but the I teachers also, hung over <laughs> yeah like the reason i included that one thing though in my facts about how this was kind of like a test for them to see if there was an audience for for these kinds of black stories and obviously it did well it did well yeah. at the box office it was nominated for an oscar so i think like that is important to look at too the fact that they made this movie about black experience without it being exploitative yeah and that it opened the door for a lot of other movies to be made sure i think that that's important to to honor it for sure do you think the oscars was being like almost progressive in a way to like get a movie like that to even more um shine a, a bigger light on it by doing giving it a best picture nomination i mean i would think so yeah i yeah. feel like you know i mean if we look at i mean even now i mean the fact that we're talking about this movie something this movie did first of having two black actors nominated for the same film has only happened three times and one of them is this year like obviously the academy is not great at sure. honoring movies made about people of color for people of color like with people of color so like that's obviously a thing they're still working on so like kudos to them for doing it in 1973 yeah you know keep doing it more maybe (laughs) (laughs) but yeah do you want to know other people thought about it i do it has a rotten tomatoes audience score of 77 percent a critic score of 90 percent but there's no critics consensus at this point at the box office, it made $16.9 million. It was nominated for four Oscars and won zero, and it has not been named to any notable lists. Excellent. We should have we should have practiced that we oh, could have done the dueling. With our mouth. Like, that would have yes. been amazing. All right. Oh, wow. Next time. Mm-hmm. All right. Deliverance, directed by John Borman, screenplay by James Dickey, based on his own novel. Uh, I got to read several log lines here. I'll tell oh, you excited. which one. I'll tell you which one's the real one. Um, but Are some of them fake ones. I mean, the like the official, <laughs> the official, the official, okay. official. All right, we got Deliverance from Evil. <laughs> <laughs> Where does the camping trip end and the nightmare begin? As soon as you say we're going camping. Yeah. For me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. All right. If you hear a banjo, start paddling faster. No. That's yeah, not I'm, real. I'm sure that's like a post, like, again, before home video. You do like a re-release later. You know what I mean? Everybody kind of knows it, but it's still a chance to go see it in theater. I'm sure that's what that is. Okay. All right. Here's the real one. Uh, what did happen on the... I don't know how to say this river. What did happen on the Kalahuasi River? 
That was the tagline? That was the official tagline. Well, that's dumb. And here's the winner. Oh, okay. This is the weekend they didn't play golf. (laughs) 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 Like, what? Okay. Okay. Intent on seeing the Kahalawasi River before it turned into one huge lake, outdoor fanatic Lewis Medlock takes his friends on a river rafting trip they'll never forget into the dangerous American backcountry. Yep. Yeah. So what do you think about Deliverance, Devin? Well, first I got to tell you some facts about it. Oh, yeah. Someday you'll understand how this yeah, I will. Works. I'll catch I'll catch wind. Well, to be fair, most people record podcasts like weekly, if not daily. <laughs> I think this, sometimes we go a couple weeks in between and just forget. Yeah, but we like just did parts. another movie. <laughs> yeah, it's true. What's Maybe my like 10 minutes ago. All right. Okay. <laughs> uh, during the filming, author James Dickey showed up inebriated and entered into a bitter argument with producer-director John Borman, who had rewritten Dickey's script. They allegedly had a brief fist fight in which Borman suffered a broken nose and four shattered teeth. Dickie was thrown off the set, but no charges were filed against him. The two reconciled and became good friends, and Borman gave Dickie a cameo role as the sheriff at the end of the film. Oh, cool. <clears throat> this film is infamous for cutting costs by not ensuring the production and having the actors perform their own stunts. Most notably, John Voight climbed up the cliff himself. Which is insane to me. But <laughs> uh, several people have been credited with the phrase squeal like a pig, the now famous line spoken during the graphic rape scene. Ned Beatty said that he thought of it while he and actor McKinney were improvising the scene. James Dickey's son Christopher wrote in his memoir that because Borman had rewritten so much dialogue for the scene, one of the crewmen suggested that Beatty's character should just squeal like a pig. Borman himself, however, in a DVD commentary, said that the line was used because the studio wanted the rape scene to be filmed in two ways one for cinematic release, and one that would be acceptable for television. Borman decided that the phrase squeal like a pig was a good replacement for the original dialogue in the script. Which was what? A lot of swearing. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The film's soundtrack brought new attention to the musical work Dueling Banjos, which had been recorded numerous times since 1955. The on-screen credits state that the song is an arrangement of the song Feudin' Banjos, showing Combine Music Corps as the copyright owner. Songwriter and producer Arthur Guitar Boogie Smith, who had written and recorded Feuding Banjos in 1955, filed a lawsuit for songwriting credit and a percentage of royalties. He was awarded both in a landmark copyright infringement case. Smith asked Warner Brothers to include his name on the official soundtrack listing, but reportedly asked to be omitted from the film credits because he found the film offensive. That's all I got. Okay. What do you think of the movie? Um, I thought that it was, uh, it wasn't, I don't know. I don't even know what to say about this movie. (laughs) It wasn't what I was expecting, I guess. It's, uh, I always thought it was kind of like a, like a horror movie in a way or something or like a scary thing. And it is, I mean, there's horrific things that happen for me. I mean, the most horrific thing is like just contemplating the idea of, camping without cell phones and just being out in the middle of the wilderness <laughs> and injured and there's nothing you can do that's horrifying to me sure also rape obviously but <clears throat> i uh i don't know this movie was i just don't i don't know i don't know 
I don't know what to say about it. Okay, I'll just pick up where, where you <laughs> left off. <laughs> no, um, yeah, uh, I had seen like kind of bits and pieces of this movie actually on cable kind of throughout my life. Um, but this is the first full on experience. I feel like there's, there's some kind of disconnect. Like it doesn't to me kind of feel, it feels like there was like four written scenes and the rest was just setting cameras on the water. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how to explain. Like, it didn't feel like a connect. It felt like this, honestly, just this experiment almost in a way where they just, they all went camping for a couple weeks mm-hmm. and then made a movie. I don't know. Uh, which is, I don't mean to like insult it. It just, it doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't translate well. And the fact that it's based on a book, it has to be highly different than the book. Like, it has to be. Unless the book is just a bunch of, you Unless know. the book is like 40 pages long. Like yeah, describe, well, yeah, or longer describing every aspect of the river and the woods around it. Yeah. Um, there's a little bit just of a disc. I love the opening sequence where they're just kind of finding, they're trying to find uh, some of these like backwoods type of people to drive their cars downriver. So when they are done canoeing, their cars are there and they're ready to go, move on with their trip. Um, I love that aspect. I love that it actually opens up and it's kind of this environmental thing. Um, which I mean for 72 just seems kind of wild. Like, you know what I mean? Like they're, it's literally like man destroying nature. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, I don't know. It was kind of, it was kind of cool, especially during like, like literally like a war time and, you know, an election and all this stuff. It was, it was kind of just interesting, um, in the context of it. But yeah, I just uh, like after the kind of intro, after the initial, just kind of like you kind of figure out what's going on that the infamous, uh, rape scene there's just not much tension anymore that's not versus nature and that's fine like i think that's fine to do but it, yeah i just really kind of lost what this movie was about what this movie was about and like we come from this perspective of it's a pop culture you know thing this movie mm-hmm. you know everybody knows that banjo line you know everybody mm-hmm. we we get it we kind of but we didn't really know what it's about like i think we both suffered from that we didn't really know what this movie was about and i do kind of love the like post river experience stuff as well it kind of it kind of in a way like feels like and i don't think this is necessarily the case but it kind of feels like it could be like a take on war like i think they're kind of dealing with but is is it ever mentioned like i don't know you know what i mean this is not a movie i've heard anybody ever talk about in that context and obviously maybe i'm just not reading the right things but it felt very much like it was this rough woods you know uh nature man versus nature experience with the elements kind of working against them but then there was definitely some ptsd stuff and and you know killing people and not knowing who you killed and why well, i don't know it's just it was kind of it was interesting yeah no I th- i'm glad you mentioned that because while we were watching it i definitely like was getting the vibe that this was kind of a a vietnam movie without being about vietnam Mm-hmm. Where these guys who go out and it's a bonding experience, but it's also really horrific things happen to them and how they're dealing with it and whatnot. And I also want to say, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, and I'm not even talking about the rape scene, but I was getting like homoerotic stuff between John Voight and Burt Reynolds where like Burt Reynolds, I mean, clearly John Voight like looks up to Burt, right? Like he mm-hmm. wants to be like him. Yes. It's like very much like this guy's so cool. Like, I mean, he's, like, macho to the nth degree. Right. But there's, like, these moments where he's, like, where Burt Reynolds is, like, why, you know why you come out on these trips with me? And he's, like, just, like, smoldering at him. And I was, like, what? Like, is this what they're saying? Huh. Or am I just reading into this because Burt Reynolds can't help but be sexy? I don't know. But, like. <laughs> I didn't get that vibe at all. 
and it was and it was just like he really right. wanted like mm-hmm. and it, maybe it's just like a male thing of wanting to like be cool to your friends and that and not like a, a sexual thing but it just it felt so much that he was constantly trying to like have burt reynolds think that he was like him or like yeah i he think didn't want so i think he was trying to live up and stuff yeah, yeah well i think it's like Burt Reynolds is the guy they all wanted to be one day. But, like, John Voight is clearly a guy who's settled. He's obviously had a kid or two. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? He's not doing this adventurous stuff anymore. You know, and I think I think that's what it is. But he's trying to show that he's still, like, cool. Do so you think it's just, like, a like, macho thing? Like, I do. I thought it was. I yeah, I thought it was more, like, of a masculinity thing, for sure. Okay. I mean, um, I accept that, too. I think that that's fair. And, I mean, I don't think that the the screenwriter intended that to be in there but i just thought it was like an interesting sub man i wish it i rather i wish it went that way i I do want to say too about the rape scene i feel like that scene is obviously what's most memorable about this movie and i think it's what most people take away from this movie and i do think it's interesting one i don't think male rape is shown often even now i mean women get raped on you know prime time every night but we very rarely see, and this was a very graphic scene. And so I think that showing that is an interesting choice in 1972. I think that the way that it's handled is really like interesting too. It's not, I don't know. There's never like the, the guy is upset about it, but they never like, he, he never gets to talk about it. He never, no. they never, not that he would want to. I think that that is kind of realistic. Yeah, because I mean, basically one of the reasons they decide to cover up the fact that they killed the guy is because he doesn't want to have to tell anybody yes. that it happened. Yeah. Which I just think is like such an interesting idea. And I wish it mm. maybe had been explored a little bit more. But mm-hmm. again, I don't think that that's what the movie wanted to be about. For sure. So I don't know. I think yeah. like ultimately this movie was just like an adventure movie about guys camping and then it has like a graphic rape scene that everybody remembers it for. Right. It's almost like that's like the horror of war element. Like that's yeah. some kind of fucked up thing the soldiers had to do. Not like, you know, not literally rape, mm-hmm. but just this thing. And they don't talk about it later. You know, yeah. it's something they leave there. They literally leave there. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like to me, this this kind of checks a lot about. And there's more too, And I feel bad because like I'm a week removed at this point. It hasn't really been on my mind too much, but I think there was a lot there, like bo- like boxes I was checking with that kind of oh yeah for symmetry. Sure. You know? I definitely do think that this is a, a Vietnam movie. Yeah, at heart. Yeah, which is interesting. It's an interesting way to no. It it at. is it is, and I just I don't know. I can't. I wish it connected more with me. Like I, I again, I just it felt like there's there's this, there was this distance, this like disconnect for myself in the movie to a certain degree, um, and it, I think. Honestly, just some of the river, like we were taken out in the fact that these people were like, it was clear they were risking their lives. Yeah, it is. Honestly, it did take me out of the movie because I'm like, they literally just threw Burt Reynolds on a waterfall. Yeah. And like, (laughs) I know that's great because obviously that's, that's kind of edge of the seat stuff if you're watching it. But but we were just coming from it. From this outside perspective, like this honestly looks dangerous. Yeah. I'm like, someone could have died very easily. (laughs) For for an interesting way because it's like, it's so real. Like. Obviously, I'm not worried about the Avengers, you know, and watching. Yeah. You know, I'm not. This like, was just so clearly the actual actors. Yes, in exactly. Really dangerous situation. It really was like man versus nature, and and it was it, it added this extra element, like for sure. But I think at the same time, it kind of distanced me, and um, and yeah, and I like kind of the end. I like the aftermath of like what happens after, but I feel like there was definitely more to explore there, like. Mm-hmm. 
they could have had conversations or even just more more so showed that you know this was going to be I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I think that it 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 opened a lot of interesting doors, but I don't know if it really like saw through what it was introducing. Yeah, it like walked up to the edge, but it never kind of like stepped over, mm-hmm. which is kind of what I needed it to do at a certain point. Mm. Yeah. And I I didn't mention the thing, but also the um the closing shot where basically it's like the dream. I think it's like John Voight's dream, right? Where then the hand like comes up from mm-hmm. the water. That final moment of basically like the memories haunting him, whatever. But that symbol of like the hand coming out has gone on to to inspire many horror films, such as yeah. Carrie and yeah. what was Friday the Thirteenth? Is that the Friday Thirteenth? Yeah, that's Friday. literally where he comes out of the water. Um, yeah, no, for sure. I think that's really interesting because this movie does have some kind of like horror elements, or like mm-hmm. a lot of horror movies have been kind of set in the wilderness as probably a yeah, reflection. Yeah, the wilderness of this. is scary. Kyle. It's fucking terrifying, and yes. you get you get. I, I don't want to call these guys mutants, but there's definitely some. Yeah, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. Are you talking about the like the hillbillies? Oh yeah, don't call them. Mutants. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. But they do. Okay, the filmmakers intentionally do like a job at trying to make them scary and intimidating. Yeah. And I'm just saying it's very like Hills Have Eyes-ish like later, which are... Yeah. But I also think it's interesting. I feel like, you know, people are like, oh, he's like creepy backwoods. Hill. I don't like using the word hillbilly, but like, I guess that's what they are. Sure. But the besides the guys that attack them. Yeah. The other people are all... F- right. Nor- you know what I mean? They're fine. They are. They're not... They are. We're immediately led to believe that there's something to be worried about, but those guys actually deliver their cars. Yeah, they deliver the cars. Everyone... I mean, they're a little like standoffish, but otherwise they're polite. They tell them where they need to go yeah, they, they like, d- play banjos with them like yeah they're a little sure they're a little cautious these outsiders too but they offer money and they do the job well yeah and they were being dicks honestly when they were in town at yeah. the beginning so i understand why well, they maybe didn't want to chat Ryan's with them be a lot yeah <laughs> it's weird vest maybe it's just the vest that was giving me gay vibes i don't know but like <laughs> yeah i get it okay what did what did uh other people think of the movie all right well it's got a rotten tomatoes audience score of 82 percent a critic score of 89 percent and the critics consensus reads given primal verve by john borman's unflinching direction and burt reynolds star making performance deliverance is a terrifying adventure at the box that was made 46.1 million dollars it was nominated for three oscars and one zero as far as its legacy, the American Film Institute on their list of 100 thrills ranked it at number 15. And in 2008, Deliverance was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. All right, moving on. Next, we have The Emigrants, directed by Jan Troell. I, you know, I don't want to say troll. Like, that's yeah. it's like T-R-O-E-L-L. I don't know. Jan Troell. We're going to say that. Screenplay by Ben Forsland is what I'm going to call him. Hmm. Is that what his mother calls him? B-E-N-G-T. So, Hmm. Bengt Forsland, Jan Troell, and based on the novels by Wilhelm Moberg. Okay. It's close enough. Yeah. I mean, it's the best I'm going to do. Sorry. A new land, a new hope, a new dream. A Swedish peasant family ravaged by poverty, uh, privation, and misery in mid-19th century Sweden set out on a perilous journey to America in hope of a better life. Yep. Tell us some interesting facts about it, Devin. Good job, Kyle. Uh, so this movie, this also has like a sequel called The New Land, which they filmed together at the same They filmed it at the same time, Lord of the Rings style. And the combined cost of those two films was 7 million krona, 
which in 2021 USD is about $6.8 billion. Wait, what? And I don't know if I did that math correctly. You didn't. I'll tell you that you did not do that correctly at all. Well, I tried. <laughs> it failed. It was like the most expensive film I'll Sweden go, had ever made. I'll go like six hundred million. Let's let's move that decimal or something. That comma. I mean, I counted the the, the comma so many times though. There's no way. Give me more facts while I look this up. How many how many krona was it worth? Seven million in nineteen seventy one. Sure, though. I get it. Okay. Um, this was the this film was the first to be nominated for both best foreign language film and best picture in subsequent years and win neither the sequel the new land was also nominated for best foreign language film in 1973 but also did not win um and this was the third film not in the english language to be nominated for best picture look it took me like forever to do this math so i don't know if you're gonna be able to do it in just this time no you're good you're good i'm done oh you're done talking yeah okay do you want me to talk about the movie first well, do you want me to talk about the movie? Yeah. But you're no, not even listening because you're on I a calculator. I got about 40 million. That's that's what I got. Okay. So. <laughs> well, that sounds more accurate, probably. <laughs> or maybe that's 40 million krona. Oh, so no, no. It's U.S. dollars. It's U.S. dollars. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. What a movie I never heard of before and was excited to jump into, honestly. Um. <laughs> You were excited to watch this movie? Yeah. I mean, besides the length. Swedish film about poverty. You were excited. Yes. Are you kidding me? Okay. It looked like it was about nothing. It was. Which is what I like. Um... Yeah. Like, I would say, uh, this movie definitely... Like, I, I like things nice and slow. Um... I think going into... Yeah. Going into a four hour... Not three... Four hours. It was like three hours and 15 minutes. Wasn't it? It felt like four hours. (laughs) (laughs) Going into a three hour and 15 minute movie is never a fun thing. Like we watched The Godfather last night, which is obviously coming up. And I mean, even when reading that three hours, I was like, ugh, three hours. But but you're right. They do different things with pacing. Okay. They sure do. (laughs) (laughs) I can tell you one did not. Neither one felt like three hours. I can tell you that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, the Emigrants, man, which is about leaving a country, yeah? Yeah. That doesn't happen for like a good hour and a half. Yeah, it's literally half the film. Yeah. They're not emigrating anywhere. <laughs> no. We kind of get why they are. I mean, this- I got why they would in the first 20 minutes. <laughs> okay? I was like, yep, I would leave I know, also. But, you know, the thing I thought this movie did really, really well, and it, by the way, it stars Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman, um- the thing I thought it did. Oh, also, the director acted as cinematographer, which oh. is which is really kind of interesting for mm-hmm. that time too. Um, what I think this honestly acts, what it feels like, and obviously, like in the mid nineteenth century, we don't get um, filmmaking, <laughs> like films don't exist, right? Uh, but what, it, what this movie honestly truly feels like is almost a documentary about a family and their journey. Uh, in that in that time period, I mean, there's 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 literally documentary kind of filmmaking aspects to this movie, um, but it just yeah, it feels like a document. It feels like we are literally getting a whole story. We are getting somebody's journal, uh, you know, from a point where they realize, you know, what this this whole Sweden thing's not going to work. We need to start over in a new land, um, and we kind of get the whole process, which like sure is not 
the most interesting thing to always want to view, right? It feels very much like this firsthand experience in a way. Um, but at the same time, man, if it didn't like honestly feel like it put me there, like I felt like I was there with, I felt like I was getting like literally a, a visual, like a, 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 I don't know, just like a lived in experience in a time where like, yes, I had no chance to live. And obviously, I mean, this is what, this is what movies are about and what they do, but I don't know if I've ever felt that as strongly than with a movie like this. I agree. It did feel like I was there and I did not want to be there. <laughs> that is how I felt. I mean, I, I agree with you. Like, I do think it does some interesting things and it definitely does feel uh, more current now watching it now because it does utilize a lot of like handheld camera work and um, camera work in very close settings. Like a lot of like things that weren't really being done that much then. Um, and so it's interesting. But I mean, it's just too long. It take once they actually got on the boat and started emigrating, mm-hmm. I was more on board. I was like, okay, yes, this is interesting. I'm a fan of boat things. You know what I mean? Like I like stories about people on boats, so I like enjoyed that. We have been watching a lot of Below Deck lately. I, mean, I like other <laughs> boat stories as well. <laughs> and um, but everything in Sweden leading up to it was just too long. Like I didn't need that much explanation of why they wanted to leave Sweden. Like I understood why they wanted to leave. Um, and it just took too long. And, but I think it's like, I mean, maybe I'm like drawing too much here, but I think it's like a really hard thing to decide to leave your homeland. Like we always hear that everybody left for America to, you know, to seek out new opportunities. But like, I think it's probably a really tough thing to do, especially back then when you don't could just take a fucking plane. Yeah. To, like, make a decision like that. And I feel like giving it the time and watching the constant struggles where they think about this, like, they have goal to eventually do this, but to see what it really takes to make that decision to move forward, I think was important. I think the time and the the stillness and the slow pacing, I think, honestly add up to actually add to the story and the experience. Agree to disagree, because I <laughs> don't think it was necessary. i think the same feeling could have been achieved in like half the time is what i'm saying i i don't think it needed to be that long Mm -hmm. i mean i agree with you i know the same ideas but i think it's it's really like an exercise in the art to kind of put the audience through that well you like that more than i do i don't like being put through (laughs) exercises when i'm watching a movie I mean, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I don't know if that's his reasoning, but like clearly no one just sets out to make a six hour movie for the hell of it. You know, I don't know what the Swedes do. Don't look like there's a lot to do over there. Judging from this movie. <laughs> Damn. Just kidding to all our Swedish listeners. I'm yeah. sure it's, it's wonderful. Now. But yeah, so you don't really have anything else you kind of want to add to it or. No, I mean, it was fine. It was a movie. You know what I mean? Like. They did it. They did that. And wow. good on them, Just I wow. say. Performances are awesome. Like, the performances, I think, are incredible. Sure. Wow. <laughs> I mean, I don't disagree. It was fine. Sure. I don't know. I like the stillness. I like watching processes, like, processes play out. Like, I like I like all these things. And so, yes, it is slow moving and often can be. But um, I really enjoyed seeing And I can't imagine, like... 
like an actor, like I don't want to be like method or anything, but like them having to kind of like live this, live in this type of life for so long. It probably was a very interesting experience. Like I guarantee this movie shot in continuity. Maybe you'll have some fun facts about that or not, but like I have a feeling this movie kind of shot probably in continuity to just kind of have the actors go along with the struggle as well. Again, it's a process movie. I do. I, I do believe that. And, yeah. a, and a good one at that. Yeah. If you're into that, then sure. Check this out. If you don't want to watch a sad Swedish movie for three hours, don't. I would say. It's not like an, a requirement to see this movie in your life, I would say. I would say, like, I'm honestly excited to watch the sequel. I know I can't get you to watch it. but no, you cannot. But it is currently, <laughs> the Criterion Collection is currently in, on my wish list, so. Originally, so. Okay. Okay. All right. What do you know what other people thought about it? Yes. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 87% and a critic score of 92%. High praise. But no consensus. At the box office? Don't know. No information about that. Two question marks is what I put. <laughs> so, I don't know. Um, for awards, as I said, was nominated for one award at the 44th Academy Awards and four at the 45th Academy Awards. It won zero across both of those ceremonies um, and has not been named to any notable lists. Which don't you just find that honestly insane? It was nominated for Best Foreign Language Film didn't win and then the next year they nominated it for best picture yeah and then nominated sequel for best foreign language film also doesn't win i don't understand any of it like do you like it or do you not like it yeah i don't get it i don't get it all right let's do a little dance sing a little song life is a cabaret old chum cabaret directed by bob fossey screenplay by jay allen and john van druten based on the Based on the book for the musical play by Joe Masteroff, based on the stories of Christopher Isherwood. Yeah. Okay. It's like an inception puzzle to get to what this is based on. Was that clear? Do I do an okay job? I know all of it, so it was clear to me. Okay. Who can say? People are unaware. (laughs) Tagline. Life is a cabaret. Inside the Kit Kat Club of 1931 Berlin, starry-eyed singer Sally Bowles and an imp- and an impish MC sound the clarion call. Is that right? Clarion call. Sure. I don't. <clears throat> sound the clarion call to d- decadent fun, while outside a certain political party grows into a brutal force. It's the Nazis. This is, yeah, spoiler. Spoiler alert! It's Nazis. All right, Devin. What are some fun facts about cabaret? <laughs> Those get much more fun. Than this musical. Just kidding. Um, Bob Fosse was eager to direct after the box office failure of Sweet Charity in 1969. He was also hoping to prove himself capable of directing more than just musicals and at one point considered cutting all the musical numbers from the show. But the studio intervened. Uh, he did cut down on the numbers from the original Broadway show, keeping only the songs performed in the Kit Kat Club, except for Tomorrow Belongs to Me. The characters and plot lines involving Fritz, Natalia, and Max were pulled from I Am a Camera and did not appear in the stage version. Also in the stage version, Brian, who's named Cliff, is straight, but the film makes him bisexual in a bid to honor Urshwood's actual homosexuality. Several songs were cut from the stage version and two new songs, Mine Hair and Money Money, written specifically for the, were written specifically for the movie. Kanner and Ebb had written maybe this time years earlier for another show and added it to the movie at Minnelli's request. She had previously sung it in shows with her mother. 
1998 revival cabaret, the new songs were included with the original songs that were cut from the movie. Oh, wow. Shortly before the Academy Awards, Bob Fosse won two Tony Awards for directing and choreographing Pippin. Months later, he won the Primetime Emmy Award for choreographing and directing Liza Minnelli's television special, Liza with a Z, and he became the first director to win all three awards in one year. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> so, cabaret. That's really interesting, actually. Those are, that's, those are some interesting facts. Um, cabaret, yeah. Uh, we had watched this a few years prior, five years probably or so prior to today. So, um, wait, why are you saying, what, did I say it wrong? No, I, I was going to start, but that's fine. You oh, you go. were going to start. You started last time, so I didn't know. Oh, no, I started last time. You started every time. Devin, what do you think about Cabaret? Well, I want to tell you a fun story. Okay. So I, as I think I've mentioned before on this podcast, grew up watching a lot of musicals. My mom is a huge fan of musicals, so she would show me a lot of musicals when I was a kid, a lot of, you know, Rodgers and Hammerstein type things. Well, this is one of my mom's favorite movies, and I guess she thought, I'm showing this girl all these great musicals. I'm going to show her Cabaret. So she showed me Cabaret. And I don't even know how old I was. I was very young. Very young. Mm -hmm. But I liked it and whatever. Like I would listen to the music, blah, blah. And then years later, and I think when I was like in high school, we were talking about Cabaret. And she said something about Nazis. And I said, there's Nazis in Cabaret? And my mom was like, maybe you were too young to have watched it. I did not, however young I was, I did not comprehend the presence of Nazis in this movie. Sure. And rewatching it now is just like, what did I take away from that then? I don't yeah, know. <laughs> that's, what I'm th- that's what I'm thinking when you're saying it's not even just the Nazis. Like the subject matter in a lot of aspects, like it's not, it's not like wrong for a kid to show a kid because the kid's not going to get any of it. That's just it. Yeah. Like I did not understand. I don't know what you were supposed to take away from that movie. I mean, I think I just took away that there were cool costumes. Cool. And yes. Singing, yes. So. There were good, some good songs and some really cool costumes for sure. So yeah, that's my fun story about cabaret. That is fun. But since then I have seen it where I did notice the Nazis and the general plot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I better understand it now. Yeah. And I think that it is a very good movie. I think that it is, it's certainly a departure from what musicals had been up to this point. If you're looking at musicals from the fifties and sixties, this is certainly a departure from that sort of bright, happy, everyone, everything gets tied up in a nice little bow and everything's happy at the end of the thing. And then we all sing together. It certainly is not what this musical is like. Obviously it's got Nazis. Um, although so does the sound of music and that's pretty happy. Um, (laughs) but I think that this is, uh, I love this story. Like, I really just love the story of Cabaret, both the film version, more the stage version, honestly. But um, I think that, I don't know. What were you saying? We watched it a couple years ago. Yeah. And I think about, even. About five years ago now at this point, six. Yeah. And even, like, since that view, and I think watching it this time, I did take more away. Like, I do, I mean. It's hard to say if Bob Fosse should have won the the Oscar for Best Director. The answer is con- no. Considering, yes, the Francis R. Coppola was nominated. But I do think this is a very well-directed movie. And Jan Troel, by the way. I'm going to ignore that. <laughs> um, you know what? The immigrants certainly shouldn't have won editing. <laughs> um, but no, I think that this is a really well-directed film. I think, obviously, it's also choreographed really well because it's bob fossey so good stuff uh i think it's well directed i think liza minnelli's performance is astounding like i feel like this this time watching it was the first time that i really like 
paid enough respect to what she's doing in this film. And I think that a lot of this movie really rests on you despite like loving her, despite her flaws, despite her personality. But um, I think her performance really like anchors the whole film and is what drives it. And she's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I would agree with you. I think Liza Minnelli kills it in this movie. The only, the one thing is that Sally Bowles is supposed to like not be talented. She's just like Mm -hmm. delusional. And obviously Liza Minnelli is very talented. (laughs) So there's that, but I can't take my eyes off her when she's on screen. Yeah. She's so great. Yeah. I will say like, I agree with like a lot of the things. And I think my biggest problem with this story is that, and I could be wrong and the stage show could be very different. I've only seen a high school version of it. So I mean, take, take what you will from that. I feel like although there's a lot of themes that are addressed in this movie and from 1972, such as homosexuality or bisexuality, abortion, um, you know, things like that. I just feel like it's so, I just want it to like go there. I want it to, I want it to cross the line. You know what I mean? I want it to like make us question things. It feels like it's just like the, the Disney version of Cap- not not literally because Disney would never touch this in 1972. <laughs> but do you know what? it feels like it's too safe in so many aspects? And like I want it to go further. I want it to do different things. I want to see, you know, tears and I don't know. But at the same time, like I get it. You know what I mean? I get it. It's still a musical. Like mm-hmm. it's still a musical. I don't know. It just it doesn't feel. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how to explain it because it is really like interesting. I do honestly actually feel like Bob Fosse directs the hell out of it. I do. And I think it's edited extremely well, but it just, it feels so kind of, it's just, it's just not letting itself go to some degrees. And it's, it feels like something is holding it back from just being something like truly marvelous. And don't you think maybe the thing know. holding it back from crossing the line is the fact that it was 1972. Like, no, I do. I think for 1972, they, I do. It's not even like things are implied. Things are explicitly stated. I agree. I 100% agree. I 100% agree. I'm saying like they do this. It is risque. It is. But I feel like, yeah, if this story came out now, maybe it'd be too much. I don't know. But I'm just saying it still feels like too subdued, I guess, in a way. That's really interesting because like I, when I like listen to the, to the soundtrack, I, I listen to the revival soundtrack more than I listen to the Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I listen to, not the movie soundtrack. And I think that the revival version from 98 um, is a lot more of what you're saying. It it, mm-hmm. it goes there a lot further. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's just like because I listened to that and then I was like, it makes me like re-remember the movie as being a lot more subdued. So then when we were re-watching it this time, I was like, oh, this is actually a lot more explicit than I was even remembering. Like, yeah. I always thought like his bisexuality is kind of just hinted at, but it is very explicitly stated. Oh, it is. Sure. Which I think is wild for 1972 i think it is too i do agree and i also I do agree um there's a line from but the there's no like it's just said and then we're just left to deal with everything like it's not addressed do you know what i'm saying like he says oh i slept with him too and that's it mm-hmm. that's it like let's dive in you know what i mean like let's explore what that means like what that does like how she feels about that well i think she kind of does because when she's trying to explain to him like why she got the abortion she's basically saying like if i if we went back to england and raised a baby like how long before i'd be in bar how long before you and then she kind of like chills off but i think what she's insinuating is like you you don't want to be with a woman essentially like 
Yeah, that's you know, fair. that's that's also one of the best parts of the movie too. But yeah, yeah, it is. But I was gonna say there's a line um, at the end of this the revival stage version. I don't know if it was in the original stage version where um, the Brian character or Cliff was saying is saying you know it was 19. I'm gonna paraphrase. I don't remember the whole thing, but it's like um, there was a club in Berlin. It was the end of the world, and I was dancing with Sally Bowles, and we were both fast asleep. And I think that line, while it's like a little on the nose, like I do think that that's like the the whole that's the crux of the story, right? Is that like this story essentially is just about these people living this lifestyle, and then all this stuff with the Nazi regime rising to power is happening in the background. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think is really interesting about it is you see the way that they're to varying degrees of success trying to ignore what's happening in the city until they can't. Yeah. But they still, you know what I mean? Like the care, like Sally never really addresses it. Yeah. I mean, it's just like happening around them. And that's why I love too, like, cause the, the mirror of the opening shot and the ending shot where it's like panning the mirrored ceiling of the Kit Kat club mm-hmm. in the beginning, you just kind of see the crowd. And then at the end where it's doing that shot again, and then there's just like, all these Nazis interspersed mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the crowd when at the right. beginning of the movie, they're getting thrown out of the club. Like, right. I just, I don't know. I just think it's really interesting because I mean, this is, you know, early thirties, like 1931. It's going to be a long time before world war two and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's just interesting to see. I don't know. I just think it's an interesting take on watching that rise. It is. And I do think that is like what it is about to you. Know, obviously, you know what I mean? Obviously, I guess like, I just wish it was more, See, like, I see, I know, because that's battling my problems with the movie. Like, it is, st- it is sort of about not truly paying attention to what's happening around them, or like not, not fighting it at all. Not, but, but like, mm-hmm. that's what I want to see. Like, I really want to see how performers and artists and homosexuals and bisexuals or whatever are are feeling like under this rise. Because I mean, fuck, the rise of conservatism or nationalism is like kind of interesting and happening all around the world right now and we're not ignoring it it's not being ignored and i think well, it's a fantasy I to think say a lot of people are to. ignoring it though also when we're ignoring it years earlier like it's not like suddenly in this country the conservatives just bro- like in 2016 it was sure. like boom here they are it sure. was happening before that and it wasn't being paid attention to and because it wasn't being paid attention to or taken seriously it was given a lot more room to grow and i think that that's the same sort of thing that is happening in this movie you know and these i mean i get what you're saying but i also like don't think we could ask a movie to be something that it's not you know what i know i know but i'm saying that's what's like holding it from being something truly special to me is what i is what i'm saying Mm -hmm. like i don't want i'm not saying that's what they should have done yeah i'm just saying like that's what's like holding it back a little bit for me is just like yeah the sleepiness towards what's happening around it the the little bit of fantasy and i understand we are talking about a musical mm-hmm. like i do i do at the end of the day see i just think that's so... interesting because to me that's what feels the most real about it the reason nazis were able to rise to power in large part is because german citizens did not fight back against them mm-hmm. and someone said because they couldn't or and a lot of his it's they like well it's it not seriously. really affecting me yes. like I mean, I think that's the most realistic part of it. It's not like a fantasy that, oh, they just like ignored the stuff was happening. And it's the reality that they ignored what was happening. And then yes. it led to World War II. But, and is it, but is it meta or is it a pro, like they're in a club that does, you know, cabaret, like they're doing satire and they're doing all these things, but they're not like they're making fun of the Nazis, but then they're not doing anything to like kick them out or to really change anything. 
Like they're making fun of they're aware of Nazi of the Nazi party. I don't think that they were making I mean they do that little dance where they're kind of Nazis, but then I feel like the song, you know, if you could see her through my eyes yeah. is like a joke for Nazis in a way. Do you know what I mean? It's not really like poking fun at them. I feel like they're oh. starting to like change their entertainment because they know that there's Nazis there. Oh my god. And so if, people, if that's like, the truth, like <laughs> That is like a new take for me. Like I didn't think about it like that. I took it as like they're making fun of like how the Nazis feel about the Jews. No, because I mean a lot of it, and even in the scene where they're in the boarding house and the people are like reading the news mm-hmm. and they're talking about how like you know the Jews are running, you know, yes. are bad. It's because they were given this. Like a lot of people just no, started sure. believing the information that was being given to them. Oh no, I get that. I see that. And I think that's that's done really well. I do. I do. Um, but I think that would besides in the him club yelling well. about it, like that's it. You know what I mean? That's the only like anti fascist thing that they do is like yell at them about it and now you're telling me that the club is changing its act to appeal more to their new nazi to protect audience? themselves i think is more of why they would do that hmm. and i mean in the stage version the at one point the mc gets beaten up by nazis oh okay and then at the end i believe he ends up putting like he has his coat and then there's like the pink armband on it that yeah. indicates that he's gay um so i mean i think that the the revival does address those things a little bit more head-on but again i think that you could address that stuff more head-on in the 90s and the 2000s yeah yeah and again i know what i'm doing like i know that the context of this is when it came out like i get it i get it i guess i guess my real argument is i think we should remake this (laughs) yes with alan coming yes like like, honestly i saw him we went so they did like a revival the revival i know you know i'm telling the listeners no i'm saying why not do alan coming yeah we saw a revival of a revival a couple years well, i guess it was a while ago at this point but um alan cumming was in it again and he still could do it so i feel like he could still do it yeah, even now yeah so. i mean how old is joel gray in this movie as the mc i don't know he looks kind of old like you know, he does look i don't old. know if that's i'm gonna try to meet but well <laughs> alan cumming is a much different mc than joel gray was yeah i don't want to see that i want to see yeah again it's like what i mentioned with uh with kind of deliverance they walk up to the line, but they don't step over. I want to see more of that with like mm-hmm. a cabaret. But I think, I mean, and then like part of the thing with this podcast is we have to like look at things in the context of too. And I think in 1972, they were stepping across the line. I know the they line. were. I agree. I agree. I agree. Okay. Through the lens of context, I absolutely do agree. I was just telling you how I felt about it right now because that's also what we're doing. Fair. You want to know what other people thought about yes. it? Yes. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 87%, a critic score of 93%, and the critics' consensus reads, Great performances and evocative musical numbers help Cabaret secure its status as a stylish, socially conscious classic. At the box office, it made $42.8 million. It was nominated for 10 Oscars and won 8. It won for director, actress, supporting actor, art direction, cinematography, editing, score, and sound. Uh, It holds the record for the most Oscar wins without winning Best Picture. As far as its legacy on the American Film Institute's anniversary list of the 100 Greatest Films, it ranked at number 63. On their list of the 100 Greatest Songs, Cabaret was listed at number 18. Wow. On their list of Best Movie Musicals, it ranked at number 5. And in 1995, it was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry. Excellent. All right. We move on to our fifth and final Best Picture nominee for the, the night. winner of Best Picture. And this is when you would say the title. Oh, <laughs> I thought you were. I thought you read more. <laughs> the Godfather. 
Directed by Francis Ford Coppola. Screenplay by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo, based on the book by Mario Puzo. An offer you can't refuse. Of course. That's which I, which I wish it was a movie you can't refuse. I don't know why. Or a film you can't. Re- I don't know. Yeah. I just using a lot. I don't know. Anyway, maybe I, that's too jokey. Maybe. I don't know. All right. Spanning the years of. Are spending the years 1945 to 1955, a chronicle of a fictional Italian-American Corleone crime family. When organized crime family patriarch Vito Corleone uh, barely survives an attempt on his life, his youngest son, Michael, steps in to take care of the would-be killers, launching a campaign of bloody revenge. It's very detailed. Yeah. Synopsis. I, w- I thought this was like, minus the first line, I thought this was kind of like a weird take on it. But really, you know, it's about the, it's about a family. It's about patriarch. It's about family. I know that's our best uh, Vin Diesel impressions. That's your best Vin Diesel impression. Family. All right. <laughs> you want to talk about this first? Or you want me to talk about it first? Oh, I got facts, Kyle. Oh yeah. Dang it! <laughs> I forgot again. No, I'm just gonna say. Okay. There's a lot of information about the Godfather out there, <laughs> and I would say a lot of people have the information yeah. about the Godfather. But you're still gonna give it to us all over again. No, I'm not. Okay. See, here's the thing. Like, there was someone. Like, look, yeah, you know. Oh, they didn't want Marlon Brando. And then he had a screen test for it. People know this stuff. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, I don't need to go over it again. Sure. So if you're like, oh. So if you're a teenager, fuck off, I guess. Google it. All right. (laughs) There's a lot of things about The Godfather you can read. There's information about this movie out there. I just highlighted a few things I found interesting. Go. All right. At the request of the Italian-American Civil Rights League, all uses of the words mafia or Cosa Nostra were removed from the script. Oh, interesting. Which I was like, like yeah, they literally they never, never say, say the word mafia. Nope. And Cosa Nostra is the is the term for the Sicilian, Sicilian mafia. Okay. Uh, one of the film's most shocking moments involved an actual severed horse's head. Oh. Coppola received some criticism for the scene, although the head was obtained from a dog food company from a horse that was to be killed regardless of the film. So I'm sure that makes everyone feel better. Gangsters reportedly responded enthusiastically to the film. Salvatore Sammy the Bull Garvano, the former underboss of the Gambino crime family, said, quote, I left the movie stunned. I mean, I floated out of the theater. Maybe it was fiction, but for me, then that was our life. It was incredible. I remember talking to a multitude of guys, made guys, who felt exactly the same way. During the film's original theatrical release, the original negatives were worn down due to the reel being printed so much to meet demand. In addition, the duplicate negative was lost in the Paramount archives. Wow. So in 2006, Coppola contacted Steven Spielberg, whose studio DreamWorks had recently been bought by Paramount, about restoring The Godfather. And The Godfather, the Coppola restoration, contains several new special features that play in high definition along with additional scenes. And it's essentially the only version you can watch because the original original has been lost. That's interesting. And that's what we watched. We watched Coppola restoration. Mm -hmm. I I wonder what's added. That's interesting to me. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I would like to kind of get a breakdown of that process. But they basically said like they just made it look the way that it would have looked. Yeah, well, for know, sure. That's what restoration is, I guess. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> how, how they intended. But I just thought the because like when we were renting it, um, or looking for it, like the only that was the we were like, oh, is this the right one? Because we don't really yeah. usually watch like director's cuts or anything. Mm-hmm. We want to watch the theatrical version, but that's the only version there is to watch. Yeah, that's interesting as, as a reason why though. Mm-hmm. Kind of so crazy. <laughs> kind of crazy that it happens with a movie like that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but yeah. What is there to say about the Godfather? <laughs> That's the real question, Devin. <coughs> yeah, it's good. It's pretty good. Pretty yeah. Good movie. <laughs> 
I mean, I went back on my letterbox, you know, I had to, I did rewatch it. It's like I gave it five stars before. Nothing changed. I don't know why I thought something <laughs> would change. Because that's a fact. Like, this is so, in, like, ingrained on our brains. And I do forget little things, you know? And they, and they come, yeah. but, you know. But it's just like every, I feel like I watch this, every, let's just say every five years or so ish, right? Mm-hmm. Every time I go in, like, is it really that good? <laughs> like, yeah. And every time it's like, yes. Yep. Yes. The answer is yes. It is beautiful. It sounds amazing. The score is incredible. The acting is phenomenal. The pacing is insane. The editing is great. Uh, have I forgotten anything? Set design. Actually, you know what? They could do a little better with set design. Not going to lie. Wow. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, this fucking movie is. It's. It. If it's not perfection, it's a fucking sliver away from it. Okay. Yeah, it's a pretty pretty good movie. I feel like I watched this movie really not that long ago. I think like three, two, three years ago, I watched it again. But I think that was the first time I'd watched it since um, I was a kid. Which again, since I told the story about my mom showing me cabaret, I'll tell this story as well. My dad. This is my dad's favorite movie. As I think it's a lot of dads' favorite movie. And um. So he wanted to show it to me and my mom. I, I think I was probably maybe like 11 or 12 maybe. And my mom was like, she's too young for it. Like, it's too violent. Blah, blah, blah. So my dad's like, okay, I'll watch it with her and I'll tell, I'll have her cover her eyes during the violence. So she, you know. Did he do that? The only scene <laughs> he made me cover my eyes for was when Sonny gets killed. So the horse The head. horse I saw. The, the the final baptism the baptism scene when they when he shoots the guys in the restaurant okay. all of that i saw all of that you saw i remember like afterwards cause my mom didn't watch it with us and then yeah she found out that was the only thing i didn't see and she was like that's not what i meant but all right cool that's funny but yeah so i saw it then and then i didn't watch it again until maybe like three years ago and i think i had that same exact experience where i was like going in to watch it and i'm like but is it that good? Does it hold up? I don't know. And then I watched it and I was like, yep, no, that's great. That's a masterpiece. (laughs) You know, it's really interesting. You told another family story. I mean, I would limit you to one per episode probably, but, um, I'm just joking. I'm sorry. Uh, but yeah, like this was a movie like my dad wanted to show me as well. Cause you're right. It is a very dad movie. And like, Mm -hmm. was literally about fathers. I mean, yes, it very much is. And it's just like, that's a memory I'll take, you know, and I've literally probably since that age where I was probably nine or 10, I have watched this movie, you know, every about five years in its entirety. Obviously, we always see it on like AMC on Father's Day or whatever. But, <laughs> yeah. but, um, but yeah, this is, I mean, this movie is like literally, it's a classic masterpiece. I, I y'all seen it. We're not, we're not telling you anything you haven't. Although apparently the, the Talon Brothers, if they listen to this, what are you guys doing? Like, what's taking so long? <laughs> On Letterboxd, it's under their want to watch. It's like, what? They like, had to make a note to remember about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was the kind of joke. It's like, really, you guys going to forget that you want to watch The Godfather? <laughs> okay, you're rolling. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen The Godfather. You want to watch it? No, okay. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always hard to just, when you're talking about a movie that has so little flaws, there's a not a lot to discuss the way we discuss about other movies. I think, you know, uh, it's a masterpiece. Like you said, everything down the line just works and holds up. It still works, still looks great. Performances are still great. As much as I kind of um, am annoyed by the the politics involved with putting Marlon Brando in the lead actor category, 
and then in the supporting actor category putting Al Pacino, Robert Duvall and James Caan and then them splitting the vote like I think that that that's annoying to me because I think if you'd put Marlon Brando supporting actor he still would have won and then maybe Al Pacino could have won for lead for sure because he is the lead of this movie it's insane to me to say that Marlon Brando is the lead of the movie but I do also think I mean Marlon Brando obviously again this isn't new information he's an amazing actor and this performance is like next level even for Brando which is really saying a lot I think they would have had a higher success rate if they put Brando in supporting and just, you know, Michael or sorry, Al Pacino in, in Best Actor. I think the press looks good that like their whole cast is nominated for an Oscar. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think the press looks good, but they didn't stand a chance. It doesn't make any sense that I would have honestly never nominated James Caan. I do. I think he's good in the movie. Yes. Even, you know, I'm sorry, Robert Duvall. Is he good in the movie? Yes, he is. Yeah. But like, are they best anything? No, they're not. Um, to a degree, right? Like, am, I, am I wrong? Like, I'm, uh, I don't know. I would. Like, I think both of them have a nomination. It's fair. Sh- I do, and I, I, and I like it. I do, but I think like, I don't know. Maybe the politics of like how it goes with splitting the vote. It's just it wasn't a smart move. Although the press of again them all being nominated does look good. But. Right, but I mean, like, The Godfather was did not do well at the Oscar at this Oscars. Like, it was nominated for ten awards and it won three. Crazy. Right, like Cabaret won way more awards. Like it honestly, yeah. I think was like, and the fact that it was the a split between director and and best picture is crazy. And I and I don't know what to talk that up to honestly. If yeah. it was in 1972, maybe it was like just a little too violent for Academy voters. Um, I don't know. That's interesting. That is interesting because did this kick off a wave of like big popular american violent movie you know what i mean like outside of westerns and that kind of thing like making That's it feel really real point. and make yeah. it feel because obviously like b movies are doing violence and you know exploitation movies are doing violence but was it is this what kicked off our our violent movie i mean i think it definitely Phase. got america obsessed with like crime families and glorifying the mafia but yeah well i mean yeah and i th- obviously th- there have been gangster movies before the godfather yeah sure but I definitely think that The Godfather... Not nearly this damn good, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I think The Godfather definitely uh, set a new precedent and reinvigorated people to want to see those kinds of movies. Sure. And I suppose it does, like, glorify it to a certain extent. Only because only because of the good things, though. You know, obviously, I have famous rants on here about how, how are you supposed to like bad people as your main characters? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not... They're not doing terrible, terrible things. In fact, they're trying to be as, like, good as you can be in this type of underworld. But, like, the reason we, the reason it's connects with so many people is because of the family aspect. It's all about doing what's best for your family, which has been true throughout and all of cinema. sometimes what's best for your family is murder. I mean, that's right. It has to get that should done. be the tagline. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Sometimes what's best for your family is, is uh, well, mass murder. I'm just saying, though, I think people don't connect with it necessarily for the crime, you know? Mm-hmm. They don't, but they like to see people... Some people have to make tough decisions in life. And that's very much what this is about. It's about weighing kind of like what's to do, what is right. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if violence is what's right, but. And I do think, I mean, like the whole thing is that, you know, Vito didn't want Michael in mm. it. Like my, honestly, like my favorite part watching this time, my favorite like moment was when uh, Vito's taken back home and he's like. He's in bed. He's in bed and they like tell him that Michael was the one who had to kill these guys mm-hmm. and he had to run away. And the way he just like turns away dude, from them and i was just like dude marlon kills it like obviously but fuck one of the 
people I follow on Letterboxd just said like it was the first time seeing he's like a younger guy or whatever. And he's, mm-hmm. like, he's like, I thought Marlon would be better because what everybody says, like his performance is so freaking good. It's so it's good. like insane. The scene with the two of them out in the garden is like, yeah, a master class of acting from both of them. But I mean, oh, sure. It's oh, there's just so amazing. many, there's so many little nuanced things that he does, and like there are, there are. It's just like so many little things, like when to cry, when not to cry, when you know it splits a second before you do cry. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. what are it's, we doing? I don't. <laughs> Obviously, The Godfather's good. What are we talking about? Rewatch it. I mean, yeah, guys. If you if you have seen it in a while, if you haven't seen it in a while, if it, you saw it just yesterday, watch it again. You know. <laughs> It's worth it. Yeah. You're not going to regret that three hours. Like, this is a three hour long movie that I would say did not feel like three hours. It felt like two hours max. I would also agree with that. I, w- I would. It just like flies by because it's so engrossing. Yeah. All right. You want to know what other people thought about it? I do. <laughs> they liked it. <laughs> <laughs> it has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 98%, a critic score of 98%. Audience and critics agree. Yeah. And the critics' consensus reads, One of Hollywood's greatest critical and commercial successes, The Godfather gets everything right. Not only did the movie transcend expectations, it established new benchmarks for American cinema. I would honestly have to agree with that. I would, too. At the box office, I made somewhere between 246 and 287 million dollars. They don't have an accurate count on that. Are you sure it's not billion? (laughs) (laughs) It could be, Kyle. (laughs) Like I said, it was nominated for 10 Oscars and won three for a picture, actor, and adapted screenplay. It's legacy. The American Film Institute, on their original list of the 100 best films, ranked it at number three. On their anniversary list, 10 years later, it's ranked at number two. On their list of 100 thrills, it ranked at number 11. On their list of 100 quotes, number two was, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. On their list of the best scores, it ranked at number five. And in their 10 top 10, it was ranked as the number one gangster film. (laughs) The 2002 Sight and Sound polled film directors voted the film and its sequel as the second best film ever, and the critics poll separately voted it fourth. And in the subsequent 2012 Sight and Sound list, it ranked at number 21 and is number seven on the director's top 10 poll. 2005, it was named one of the 100 greatest films of the last 80 years by Time Magazine. And in 2006, the Writers Guild of America voted it number two in its list of the 101 greatest screenplays ever after Casablanca. And in 2012, the Motion Picture Editors Guild listed it as the sixth best edited film of all time. And in 1990, it was preserved in the Library of Congress. So, Kyle, <laughs> do you think The Godfather deserved to win Best Picture? I do. Me too. I wouldn't argue the Academy on this. I wouldn't. Not no, I would argue they should have given it more awards. Yes. Yes. Luckily, uh, Godfather Part yeah. 2 is coming down the road. Yeah, so. yeah, for sure. Well, they kind of make up for it. They do. Does it deserve it more? I don't know. But do they make up for past embarrassments? Yes. They do. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, that was good. No, we should. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, in, in this instance, the Academy got it right. Yeah. I do want to say, though, I would really recommend The Immigrants. That is not a podcast endorsement. That is just a Kyle endorsement. I want to make that very clear. But this podcast does endorse The Godfather. <laughs> sure. All right. Well, that's it. That's our episode. And that is our season, guys. Season wow. three oh in the God. books. 
all recorded during a pandemic. Yes, our COVID season for sure. And all airing during a pandemic because this mm-hmm. pandemic shall never end. Season four is probably going to be a pandemic season as well. We shall well, This see. is our first pandemic season. Yeah, number one pandemic yeah. season. <laughs> so uh, thank you guys for listening. Yeah, um, be sure to follow us on Instagram so you know when season four is coming. And uh, we'll see you then. Wait, 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 music? Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. If I don't ask you now, when I go to edit this, I'm going to have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we came in on Devin. We <laughs> Oh, no. I shouldn't have said anything. Oh, I'm ruining this. We are wrapping up so, so we well. So we came okay. in <laughs> listening to uh, the best song winner of the year, The Morning After from the Poseidon Adventure. Because, Sure. <laughs> And, uh, but why would we go out listening well, to that? We wouldn't. We wouldn't. We would obviously go out listening to... The Emigrants. Cabaret. Cabaret. Or, you know what? You pick. Oh, God, no. <laughs> uh, should I sell it now? I mean, I'm going to cabaret, and then I'm going to segue into the Godfather theme. All right. Sounds good. So listen listen to this music, guys. Yeah. And enjoy it. And come back next season. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> What good is sitting alone in your room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Put down the knitting, the book, and the broom. It's time for a 